Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Amy Cutler. Cutler is included in Telling Stories, Resilience and Struggle in Contemporary Narrative Drawing at the Toledo Museum of Art. The exhibition, which also features two-time Man Podcast guest Robin O'Neill and Annie Pudugook, examines how the three artists have used contemporary drawing to build and explore narrative. Created by Robert Reisenfeld, Telling Stories will be on view in Toledo through February 14th, 2021. Cutler's paintings join feminism-informed, suggested, or hinted-at narratives to traditions that include miniature painting, textile design, nature and landscape, and a whole lot more. Her work has been featured in solo exhibitions at the Joslin Art Museum in Omaha, the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach, Site Santa Fe, the Weatherspoon Art Museum at the University of North Carolina Greensboro, and plenty of others. And in February 2021, the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art will present a survey of Cutler's work. On the second segment, Degree Zero, Drawing at Mid-Century at the Museum of Modern Art, New York. But first, Amy Cutler, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has just opened the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for Modern and Contemporary Art, capping the completion of a decade-long project to complete the Susan and Fayez as Seraphim campus. Visit mfah.org getmodern. Take a virtual drive down Sunset and experience the iconic boulevard through the lens of artist Ed Ruscha. Featuring more than 65,000 photos taken between 1965 and 2007, this interactive online exhibition guides us from downtown L.A. to PCH, past sites like the Cinerama Dome, Roxy Theater, and Chateau Marmont. Watch the storefronts, billboards, and cars change over time. Search for a favorite neighborhood or landmark. Learn more and start driving at 12sunsets.getty.edu. And we're back. Amy Cutler, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to start in the broadest possible place, which is the way in which your paintings are not folk stories and are not mythology, but inevitably make the viewer think of that kind of narrative. So what interested you in folk stories and mythology, and when did you become interested in them? I don't specifically work from either of them. No, no, but the, but, but the work seems to have it within it. I mean, when I started drawing very young, I think even at age four, I saw it as a way to take control of my own world. As a young child, you don't have control of much. And, and so at that age, I was somehow aware, maybe it's like an art therapy for, for myself that I discovered. But I just, I started using it as a type of voodoo or <laughs> just wishing things to happen or protecting things and making things play out in my drawings that I wanted to change in, in my life. But I would always substitute people for animals or whatever. But in my mind, I knew what I was controlling. So it's always more playful. And I don't think I really, I don't have a great depth of knowledge about myths and um fairy tales. I have basic, I guess in college, I started reading more about Grimm's fairy tales and that sort of thing, but I never was so interested in replicating anything. And I think there's always that line drawn between them because they're narrative. While you don't refer to specific folk stories or myth, there is a narrative element within the work, not necessarily a story that you've written and painted, but that as the viewer approaches an artwork, we understand that we're seeing a frame and a broader narrative, even if you didn't paint a broader narrative, and our brain then creates a story. It's it's inevitable, at least for me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of metaphors, and the basis of my work definitely is personal experience mixed with contemporary politics and whatever is happening around me. It's definitely a fusion of everything. And I also often reference things that are happening in nature or ecosystems and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm always drawing comparisons between human and animal life and that sort of thing. What I find to be helpful is that just through building a body of work, you end up building a vocabulary. And I see it as when I use something I go to that image because it represents something to me. So all these 
certain things are key to being symbolic in my work. And it doesn't matter if the viewer is tuned into it. I think some of the things are just there. You know, if you take an animal, like currently I'm using a lot of horses and a lot of turtles. So horse for me is a, a you know, a, a domesticated animal in a, a way it's a strong animal and it's a means of transport and, and there's all these things connected to it. A turtle for me is a, it represents time because there's, they, they have such a long lifespan and also they're always marked as, as moving very slowly. So when I inject these animals into the painting, they, they're avatars sometimes for a feeling or a, a figure, but they also stand in to alter the, the landscape of meeting, I guess. There are a lot of recurring animals and a lot of recurring places in your work. And seeing as you brought up animals, I wanted to ask you, I, I had in my notes to ask you about pigs. You paint more pigs than anybody, and you don't just give us pigs, such as in a work from 2014 like Garnish, which will be in the survey of your work in Wisconsin in 2021, or a work like Pike from 2017, which is in the show that's up in Toledo right now. You don't just give us pigs, you put them in textiles. So what are pigs for you? And then we'll, and then we'll get to the textiles. The pigs, well, it's a collection of different, <laughs> different things. I was always fascinated by all of the um, medical experimentations that connected humans and and pigs, like I think you can have a transplant, you can have a human heart. So the interchangeability of certain things interest me. The fleshy quality, they're like disgruntled and the attitude always was something that I was intrigued by. I also lived in Germany in 1995. I was on an exchange program and, and I was a vegetarian at the time and just like pork is everywhere and sausages and that sort of thing. And, and so like, I was just always thinking about pigs because they're, they're eaten so much there. And then also I once went to a, a pig farm in Iowa and that really turned me off completely. <laughs> so all these things mixed together. And I also had this very, this cat with a, she was very possessive and, and she sort of represented a pig to me because she, the way she would go after her food and she was just kind of aggressive in that way. So some of the way that the, the pigs are sitting actually is more representative of the cat I had for 21 years because she, she kind of had that kind of attitude that, that I would think a pig would have, you know, some, a whole mix. And then why do you almost always not quite clothe, but maybe drape your pigs in textiles? That's funny because I was just thinking that I didn't realize I do that, but, but it, maybe it's because they're so fleshy <laughs> and I want to give them a little, a little bit of dignity. I also, for a long time, I think there's some, there's something out there that I don't know where it happens, but they race pigs and they put those those little numbered jackets on them and then they just set them, you know, it's sort of like a rodeo situation or I don't, that's the wrong word, but so I got really into numbering them and thinking about them as things that you are passing. And um, I, I use numbers a lot to tag animals because animals are tagged and recorded in that way. But also in my work, the numbers come in as representatives of time past in like a number, an age number, you know, so I'm 46 now. So I don't think I've ever, all the numbers I've used are below 46. So they, they sort of represent reaching back and to a past time, but the numbers usually aren't so specific because I am not good with numbers, but it's just to re represent time past and realizing how, how old I am now, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. So that's how the numbers come in, just an accounting for something. <laughs> so we started with folk stories and mythology. And of course, one way in which your work feels like new folklore, new mythology is its interplay of humans and animals and often in ways that make the animals primary within the works. Another way is is how you 
cite your implied narratives, how your paintings are cited. And there are two primary ways in which, or places in which you, you cite your scenes. One is with a background of trees, branches, or denuded forest. And we'll come to that one in a moment. But the other one is, and, and this has been true in your work for 20 years, that you simply let people and pigs and whatever other animals exist surrounded by vast emptiness. What about that vast emptiness, I guess, doesn't just work for you, but has kept working for you? Uh, it took me a while to to accept it, but it was at first how I came to it was I used to overload my paintings in in such a way that the narrative would just be muted. There was if you cover every inch, there's no space to breathe. So I realized that once I dropped that out, the space was activated, and not only physically, but for me mentally. It was less stagnant just because it had room to move, but also it, it went beyond the paper or for a time I was working on wood. And also the weight of the paint sitting on the the paper also was able to breathe a little bit. And it also is a stand-in to make it more open for fluctuation of meaning, I think. I think it absolutely works that way. I mean, one of the things about your forests whether it's in Garnish, which we were talking about a moment ago, or in a work like Siloing from 2016, is that we see or read, might be a better word, tree trunks behind the primary actors in the painting. And we see in your painting, or maybe, you know, maybe 10 or 20 trees, but we understand that as a stand-in for a larger, larger forest. What about trees slash the suggestion of forest is a site that is continually, repeatedly important for you? It's mysterious, and I think you can be in any forest and be lost, unless you're a ranger or someone <laughs> that's really good at finding their way. But for me, it's just when I'm in a forest, and I'm not there very often, but it's just so full of, fa like, it's just fascinating and I guess I can't really place myself. I can't really identify where I am. And that feeling of being lost is, is really interesting to me. And also that every, every forest is different, but, but I think everyone has experienced that feeling, you know, so it's not so specific that, that it would close the narrative off to you. So you would be able to bring your own ideas into the image, I think. And I think it was really interesting that you mentioned the, the characters as being actors, I think. Did you say that? I might have. That sounds like a word I, I overused. Because, no, <laughs> no, because I, that's exactly in my, in my mind. I think of them as like, first, I'm always working on a sketchbook and I think of them as being actors on a stage in a way. And I'm always just capturing the one moment. So just as in stage design, there's really nothing there and maybe there's, you know, the audience is always filling in and they're always just activated by small props. And then just that void is really interesting to me because it makes it a whole different thing. As I started thinking about what you might consider your own art historical precedents, I found myself thinking a lot about this emptiness, this space that you intentionally leave in, in the work. And I kept thinking about surrealism, about like Kay Sage or Muriel Streeter or Lola Alvarez Bravo. And then when I went and looked at works by those artists and other surrealists, I couldn't find a whit of surrealism in your work, <laughs> which is all a long way of asking. I understand why critics might read surrealism. Surreal means hyper-real, extra-real into your work, but has it ever been important to you? I think something having multi-layers of meeting is, is more important. And I think if you were to compare it to literature, it's like magical realism where anything can happen. So I'm, I'm representing something that exists, but it's off. So I don't know if that's surreal. Well, maybe that's what I'm, maybe that's why I thought of surrealism, right? Because in a case age painting, 
And I do think the space in sages are not unrelated to yours or at least relevant to yours. But there's totally something off <laughs> in, in, in case sages, fantastical, not really landscape landscapes. Of course, the other difference between your work and surrealism, at least I think another important difference, is that surrealism is an investigation of quite often the self and a painted presentation of the subconscious. And I don't think your work is any of those things. I don't think you're painting your subconscious. I think I am. Oh, really? Okay. Then <laughs> <Yeah>. maybe I'm. <laughs> because I think it's a conversation I'm having and it's, I don't predetermine it. So it's, it's something that comes, I don't question it when I'm, when I'm working and um, I just follow where it goes. I, you know, I, I do start with the thumbnail and that's pretty much just for composition. And then I, I let it go from there. So I don't understand them sometimes. You start with a thumbnail, you mean like a little sketch or? Oh, yeah, small, like very loose, even cartoony sketch in a, in a, in a sketchbook. And then I work on uh, three to 400 pound hot press paper and I hang it on the wall. And so I'll sketch out loosely what I'll look at my thumbnail and then go on to the pa the good paper. And then once I have the positioning of things, I'll lightly draw them. But then when I go to work with the gouache, I have to erase everything. So I'm not dedicated to anything that preexisted in any sketch. It's, it's all just coming from my head. So I think a lot of it is subconscious. I have not yet asked about what might be the most obvious and consistent thing across your work, which is that it always, darn near always, features groups of people. And when it does not feature groups of people, it features a person with a group of animals. <laughs> and of course, those those people are always women. We'll get to the second part of that in, in a moment, the women part. But for now, what do groups of people allow you to access or to do, whether that's in terms of a suggested narrative or composition or complication? that you particularly enjoy? Well, for one, it gives me the ability to bring in more textiles. So <laughs> color. <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes you've done that with pigs, as we, as we talked about a moment ago. But I, I think it's, it's just a way to amplify the mood of, because it's always, I always start with the faces in my, in my paintings. That's like they're about the size of my thumb, but I have to introduce myself and meet who who I'm about to spend all this time with. And once the faces are done, I understand. Okay, she's gonna have a slouch. She's gonna have this kind of neck. She's she's gonna. I understand so much from just the the attitude that comes out of the face, and they tell me what they're gonna wear, <laughs> and then so for that, and then to balance that out. I just have more of them, then you get a better feeling of what, why they're doing what they're doing because of what's going on in their, the emotions in their face. Was there ever a time, and this includes going back to when you were like six years old, that there were men in the work? Yeah, there's a sprinkling every now and then. <laughs> but I do draw women because I am a woman and I'm talking about my own experiences. When I do inject men, I think it changes the dynamic. I did this big painting called Hen House that's at the in the Walker collection. And that has a bunch of men in it. <laughs> but for me, I, don't, I think it has to do with my background and having divorced parents and going to an all girls school. And it's just, you know, layers of things that I just tend to focus on groups of women because that's has been my experience. I haven't been surrounded by a lot of men. Hen House is from 2002. It's 18 years old. Where are the men in it? <laughs> I mean, I see pigs. Oh, really? You can't? I there's see some pigs, farmers but I'm making a joke. You see pigs? Come on, there's at least one or two. I think maybe their thighs are too big for you to recognize them as men. <laughs> there, there is a figure in the, foreground, yes. the center foreground who could be read as a man, but is not necessarily by any stretch a man. <laughs> he's not manly enough. <laughs> well, he's not. His 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 gender is willfully it obscured. Is obscure. One might say. It definitely is. But when I did that, I I was thinking of a man. But it, it you're right. It looks like any any person with a plaid shirt on. Uh, you know, one reason I wanted to bring up the 
let's settle on absolute rarity. Okay. Of, <laughs> <laughs> I try. Of, of men in the work. Is, is the whether or not you've ever had that as a rule? I mean, you know, one of your rules is, is, or apparent rules is gouache, and we'll talk about gouache in a little bit. But it seems like no man is a rule, and, and I wonder if that was at every point a rule you, you know, wrote on the studio wall, as it were. No, it was just unintended pursuit of being able also, when you, you, it's very, it's not very interesting to dress a man, and I could get, when I, I use a lot of, and we could go back to this, when I do traditional costumes and stuff, and that also I wanted to bring up when you were mentioning folklore, because that's obviously also why I think I'm tagged with the fairy tale kind of aspect, is because if I'm, if you see folklorish costume, it, it brings you back to a certain period of time that is referenced in, in many myths and tales and that sort of thing. But it's also women are just, they're easier, not easier, but they, they just have more interesting ways to present themselves. I think, I mean, there's many exceptions. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's no rule to, there's no gendered rule to textiles and patterns and color range that women wear, whereas there is for men. And for the most part. Yeah. And you certainly have a lot of fun with textiles. I mean, your what you put women in and what you surround them with, because sometimes your textiles are hanging or doing other things that are not directly related to a body is just supremely entertaining. When did textiles become important to you? What made them important to you? It actually, it was actual textiles. When I was in college, I was making up patterns and I just reached a point where, you know, you could only do so many combinations of stripes and polka dots. And then I just needed to go outside and start to bring in references. And it really changed everything because then that's when like cross-cultural things came into play and also my palette opened up dramatically. I think one of the first books I, I was looking at and I would go to also to museums and that sort of thing, but I do have a quite a big collection of books on textiles. I have this batik book from Indonesia and and I was never a big fan of hot pink and turquoise, but all of a sudden I was like, this is what I'm using. You know, it just changed everything and just like made me use these colors that, that in, in normally I would never use. So that was really exciting. And then also just how textiles travel on the backs of people and they cross cultures. And that was always fascinating to me because when I would travel, I would always try to go to a folk art museum and that sort of thing. And it was just amazing to me to see the, the, I was in Finland at one, one point and I was looking at the, the Sami or the Laplander costumes or traditional dress. And it was so similar to the Inuits of, you know, Canada. And, you know, so you, you could see how this thing would travel. And also when you look at the Inuit textiles, it, you see traces of it in in Korean traditional patterns and stuff. So that sort of language that is carried on the backs or in sacks or, you know, traded, it just really fascinated me. So, and that just keeps on growing. I have a particular uh, interest in Japanese textiles because of the graphic qualities and the puzzle-like forms and the geometry of it. I'm just stuck there, but I'm okay. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to explore. Your 2013 Handmaidens, which is a gouache on Japanese paper, features this closet, which has, you know, it, the closet makes up one fifteenth of the painting, but within it, it has probably like 25 different textiles. It's just this bravura explosion of overlapping color and pattern in a way that almost mocks abstract painting. Yeah. I like the mixing of everything and the layers. That really interests me. And just one quick thing on how you mentioned your interest in textiles as themselves migrating and traveling around the globe. Um, very often, very, very often in your paintings, we feel like your women are on their way somewhere or have just arrived from a long journey. 
which I imagine is sort of related to that. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) I I like to agree, yeah. (laughs) One of my favorite connections, if that's the right word, that happens in and around your work is the connection between hands and making, the handmade, the handcrafted, the hands affected. We see making and handsy making happening in painting after painting of yours. And of course, your paintings are are themselves very, very handsy. It is very easy to picture a person sitting in front of a big sheet of, you know, five foot wide sheet of paper and working on it with her hands as, as you do. Is there an intentional relationship between your making and the making we often see in the paintings? Intentional. No, I don't think it's intentional. I, I think I have, I, I overly romanticize the pre-industrial era. I, I love when things are visual, when the mechanics are out there. So there's, there's a, there's a period of time where I was doing a lot of things about mills and different sort of mechanisms just to expose everything. And that's in contrast just to how mysterious computers are to me and how frustrating it is to figure something out and you wish you could just open it up and fix the problem. So, so when I think of the pre-industrial age, when you could, you could just open it up and see the inner workings of everything that just is really exciting to me. And then also this is something in the beginning when I fell in love with Persian miniatures, I was fascinated with how the energy that was imbued into these tiny paintings is always reflected back to you when you sit in front of them. It's just like that really always excited me or in a whole bind or just it's like a time capsule of energy. And so that always was something I was fascinated in. And it doesn't go away. So I don't know what that. <laughs> You, yeah, you even take us inside people's heads sometimes, you know, kind of like cut their head open and show us other people inside their heads. Well, it's kind of a metaphor for everything from groupthink to computing to a calculator or something, right? I mean, it reduces processes, complicated processes to the human or to the human scale. Speaking of heads, you like hair a lot. I do. <laughs> Why? The fascination started when I was in first grade and there was this, this, these two girls in my school and they had hair <laughs> like mid thigh. And it, I was intrigued and repulsed at the same time because they were always kind of handling the hair like it was like a, a little ferret on their shoulder or something. And, and I also think about the complications of using the toilet and all these things, you know, so. And I always had to keep my hair shoulder length because I wouldn't brush it and there would be nodding issues when I was a child. So that was something that interests me. But also going back to my interest in very, <laughs> just when you think about a, a piece of hair and what it contains, the history, the DNA, and there's so much in it in terms of determining the health of someone. And then when you go to different cultures and and how they deal with hair at certain ages where they shave the heads and it's sexuality, it's vanity, it's fertility. Those were all things that interest me. And I also, from 19, right after I graduated from Cooper Union, I, I moved to Williamsburg and there was a, there's a large Hasidic population there. So my studio was right in the middle of that. So I would also see all these amazing wigs and, and these, you know, six women in a row with, the same dress on or something. But I also had this experience when I went to, um, I went swimming at the Y and it was, it was woman's hour. <laughs> I didn't know what that was about, but curtains went up and these Hasidic women were changing in the locker room. And I was, I must've been like 20 years old or something, but they took off their wigs and they had these pop-up wig stands. That was so fascinating to me because then just to see all these disembodied heads <laughs> in a way, that the, these, all these little, you know, brown bobs were on, on the, the windowsill. That was just really interesting because you'd see these, they were beautiful wigs. So the idea of shaving the head because it was too intriguing or sexually interesting, you know, it's all about vanity and you have to get rid of it. But at the same time, they have these gorgeous wigs. So it's just fascinating. So I wanted to raise the question of work and the handcrafted 
in your paintings and hair together to get to an installation you did about five years ago, I think, for Site Santa Fe's 20th anniversary show. It was an installation with musician Emily Wells and hairdresser Adriana Papaleo, which is to say that it was a physical sculptural installation and not a drawing or a painting or a print. It was really wonderful, and I loved it, and I still remember it. I still remember being more or less in it. But, you know, your hand was, you know, substantially absent in the way that we expect your hand to be present in an Amy Cutler. So it was a departure, but not a disconnection, because there were obvious relationships to themes you've been working on for decades now. That was five years ago. In hindsight, how did that work for you? How did taking your hand out of the work and doing something three-dimensional work for you? It was the first time I ever worked collaboratively. The invitation to to that show at Site Santa Fe was to make, was you had to do a cal- collaboration. So that's how that came about. So that forced me into a different realm because my work is so time consuming. It takes me so long. I, I knew that I, if I had nine months or whatever it was, I wouldn't be able to produce. And I didn't know how to, how do I collaborate while painting? I'm sure there's ways, but I, I didn't know how to tackle it, tackle it right away. And I had been talking with my friend Emily and, and we just formed this idea really quickly. So the interesting thing about that was it was, and I've, I've done this before, mainly in college. I would often take, take objects out of my painting and make them three dimensional or I, I have make sculptures and it was just a way of, of being able to, to physically have something in the room. And I think I was, when I was in school, I, Robert Gover was one of my favorite artists. So those isolated sculptures that related to the body always fascinated me. And when I did, I did FOSA twice. The installation in Site Santa Fe consisted of a lean-to, and I think there was nine or 12 birch trees that were brought into the gallery. So it felt like I was physically make, remaking the painting, and I was activating the space with the viewer to participate in, the, in exchange for removing my figures. So that was kind of fun for me to see how that would work out. And then when I did it again at Leslie Tunkno artworks and projects, I I decided that the lean-to was not working <laughs> because people were not willing to enter a dark space and engage with, with a mound of hair. So the second rendition was I had this stage-like platform built that represented a room that was taken from one of my drawings. It was all about making the drawing three-dimensional and then bringing the the person in in exchange for the missing figures in my work. Let me raise one other artwork that plays with the intersection of hair and making and and handsy making. It's a lithograph you made with Universal Limited Art Editions in 2008 called Weavers. And we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. But it's a work that suggests a relationship between art and painting and light, which is something that has existed in the history of painting since, you know, 14th century or something, only you've added hair. (laughs) So is there a relationship in your mind or that you were getting at in that print between light and making and creation and art and comma, finally, comma, hair? Well, let me put this out there that those four lithographs were based on a drawing called Hair Mill. So it's a graphite drawing that I then made into these four lithographs. And the idea, I was thinking about factory space first and the way the old factories have so many windows to, you know, to let in lots of light. And that was sort of the beginning of my interest in hair in the way that led to FASA about being self-sufficient. So these women have joined together and certain women sleep and their hair grows and then it's sort of harvested and then carded and woven. So it becomes a cycle. And I was thinking about that they had this cottage industry (laughs) and they could just be self-sufficient, grow their hair, sell it and, you know, repeat and that sort of thing. And that's when I moved on to FASA years later, it was like 10 years later, 
I brought that idea back. I was looking at a book of Kinsey photography from the 1905, I think it is. And um, they explored the, this group of this, uh, a husband and wife team that followed the logging community. And they took these incredible pictures where they would just, you know, deforest huge, huge areas. And, and they had all the process shots and how they would stacks and stacks of, of this wood. And just was it, for me, it related so much to, say, like an, an ant colony or something in nature where you have drones or busy workers. So I used those photographs as a as sort of the the plot for for Fossa. Another thing I brought in because this is the first time working with, in a collaboration. I didn't know how to to invite my collaborators into my mind, so I had to give them something to grab onto. So I also had them read um, Herland by Charlotte, Charlotte Perkins Gilmore, just to set the mood. And that was a, a utopian society of all women and they lived in the trees and they did all these things. So I was combining those two, but then I was replacing the wood with hair. So the hair in that piece, because Emily, she, she made two beautiful compositions that were multi-layered that, that you would listen to through headphones. And she also had a, an ambient piece. The idea was that this central, <laughs> there's so many ideas in this piece, but, but it was the idea of like a switchboard operator. You would sit down, have the headphones on and you were able, there was five knobs on each side of this like hive of hair. It was like this mound that was five feet tall or so. And so you'd switch pan back and forth and you get different layers of the compositions. And also Emily was having this conversation with her father. And so you were able to sort of like the idea of the, the switchboard operator who had to physically, again, pre-industrial age, physically connect the wires and how in old films, you'd always see there's all this chaos around like connecting the wrong ones or, you know, eavesdropping and that sort of thing. So I was fascinated just by the poetry of the literal confusion of it. And I had also been looking at a bunch of, of wires and electrical mess in different, like I had, there was this one image I just took off the, the web from India and they had all these electrical wires and it was such a chaotic mess, but it was so beautiful. So that influenced me. And then, so in that piece, there was 900 feet of braided hair. Those for me, represented conduits of sound. So instead of a wire going through, it was the hair. And that actually came out of this hive of hair and then through the wall and then through the actual gallery wall. So it was like this chaotic threads throughout the gallery of these these long braided hairs. But also, <laughs> one of the things, Kyoto, there was a temple that burnt down. And when they were rebuilding it they couldn't hoist up the the large beams the things i think the ropes they had weren't strong enough so people donated their hair and so when when i visited this temple they had one of these huge coils of hair that it was just it still you know it was old and dusty and <laughs> but it was actual hum, human hair in this huge coil and that was just remarkable to me that everyone gathered together and gave their hair and then they were able to reconstruct this temple. So that sort of thing influenced it. In a lot of your works, the relationships between body parts are unusual. So take a work like Intervention from 2018. The necks of the the geese, I'm going to, the geese, swans, whatever they are. I can never tell the difference. It's embarrassing. But the necks on those birds are are very long. In Harbinger's Grove, you put men's heads on the ends of serpent bodies. It's it's not unusual in your work for there to be these inventive relationships between body parts. But it all ends up looking very natural and normal. What about changing bodies, stretching them out quite often, do you like? It does feel natural to me, so I don't see it as... I think it just it it emphasizes the emotion or feeling that I'm trying to talk about. And um, I right now I'm working on this large painting where I'm focusing on 
Catholic saints. And I've always been fascinated how they could be really gory. You could have eyeballs on a platter or a breast or whatever, but there's no blood involved. And and also in Persian miniatures and Indian painting, there's always severed body parts. And it I like the idea of it being like a component and an interchangeable part. Finally, there are two art historical references that I find in your work and that I wonder if were of interest, and, and, and it's painting if I wonder was, was of interest to you. One is Bruegel's paintings of peasants. I've always loved those paintings and that painting in particular. I haven't spent time with them recently. I, I got to see them in person in, in Vienna. They're, yeah, they're amazing. There's there's something about the swirl of happy to be their humanity in those paintings that I think. Wow. And they're really perverse too. There's like and they are lots really of weird perverse. things. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, I like that aspect <laughs> of it too. Like there's all these little <laughs> hidden things. It's like it's like back when I you know you have to find the hidden whatever. I kind of like that because, and I think that relates to my paintings too. It, you walk up to it and it appears to be fine, but then you start peeling away the layers and you're like, oh, that's, that's a little odd. So I think I like that the viewer painting, the, the feedback, as much as you put into it, you're going to get out of it, you know? Yeah. And Broigley compositionally doesn't tell you where to look and you almost never tell us where to look. And, and, and I think that's why I, I, I thought of Bruegel. And and I, I think that the, the last example is, is, is similar in that. And that in Dutch golden age genre scenes, particularly tavern scenes, particularly scenes outside inns or taverns, Dutch painters also don't tell us where to look. And now that you mention it, those scenes are always perverse and uncontrolled and somewhere between feral and really feral. So I wonder if you've found them of interest or of importance. There was a period of time that I was really into it. And right now, it, it just seems so far away. I feel like I have to revisit them. <laughs> because I was going to say back when we were talking about the, the white space and the composition, I think something that heavily influenced me was looking at Japanese screens. And the there's one in particular at the Met where there's all these clouds. And I think they might even be golden or something. But all there's behind the clouds, there's all these things happening. There's so much of the painting that's occupied by the clouds that it's, it's fascinating, the balance of positive, negative. Also, time is also concealed. And I think one of the screens has all the seasons in it. So you start off, you know, in the summer and end in the winter or whatever they have. But it's all, you know, concealed under the clouds. So that I remember that screen in particular being like a, a revelation because it connects things by concealing them. And I like the idea of something always being missing and that the viewer has to bring to it because if something's complete, there's no intrigue. So I think I'm always looking outside of the picture plane or, or sort of pointing to something that, that exists beyond that you have to bring in yourself. I think that's something that I am fascinated by trying to find the missing piece or maybe that's where I start. I, I think of what's missing because often like I'm working on this big painting now that has a huge pile of dishes. And for me, it's a mound of dishes, but it also represents sound. So I'm always thinking about what you can't represent two dimensionally. I'm trying to bring into the painting. That is a perfect place to close. Amy Cutler. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton McDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American abstract artists such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhardt, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Carone, known for their participation in abstract expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of non-figural 
or abstract art. For more information on small abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center is ready to welcome you back. Kick off the fall season with a stroll through the Nasher Garden and visit today to see Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture, the first U.S. museum survey of works that combine 3D scanning technologies with traditional sculpture techniques. Whether online or in person, find new ways to enhance your visit, from time ticketing, weekly music performances, to expanded digital content on the Nasher app. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Museum of Modern Art New York curator Samantha Friedman. She joins me to discuss her exhibition, Degree Zero, Drawing at Mid-Century. On view at MoMA through February 6, 2021, the exhibition examines how artists on five continents used drawing to create new visual languages in the years after World War II. Samantha Friedman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much, Tyler, for having me. Where does the phrase Degree Zero come from? What does it mean? And how did it come into really international currency in the years around World War II? There are a lot of answers to it. I'll give you a few. It was a phrase that was used first, or a similar phrase was used first as a kind of a German military idea. The zero hour was used to describe the end of the Second World War. And after that kind of military connotation, it began to circulate in more cultural spheres. So in you know 1948, you have Rossellini's film, Germany, Year Zero. In 1953, Roland Barthes writes his first book, Writing Degree Zero, which of course was where I kind of took the phrase directly. But artists also in this, in this period, a real range of artists are sort of using this rhetoric of zero very much to convey the idea of starting from scratch. Of course, you have like the zero group in Dusseldorf, you have the zero Kai or zero group in Japan, and you have artists, you know, as diverse as Klaus Oldenburg or philosophers or, you know, like Sartre or critics like Charles Estienne or Tapier, all kind of referencing this idea of zero in this moment. So I think it's, it's something very much in the air. Historians have picked up on it, too, of course. Ian Baruma's recent Year Zero, A History of 1945, I think that book was published in 2013, is both really good and kind of maybe an historical textual starting place for, for some of what's, what's in the show. Baruma now, of course, is the editor of the New York Review of Books. So what are some of the ways in which the zero idea, the degree zero idea, manifests itself across many artists and their drawing output, which is a big question. But in terms of what's on your walls, there are, I think, some strategies of commonality, if you will. I mean, I think a kind of a variation on the zero idea is this idea of starting from scratch, right? Which is something that Jean-Paul Sartre says in talking about Giacometti. And I like that phrase when it comes to drawing, of course, because it's quite literal, right? A drawing is a scratch, so when you're starting from zero and you're starting from scratch, it's really about making this first tentative mark on a blank page in a moment of uncertainty. And so I think you see those kind of tentative first stabs in the, some of the drawings in the show. You also see the scratching, right? Like you see that graffiti-like scribble that we associate with Giacometti, that kind of reference to graffiti, the reference to the the cave paintings at Lascaux, you know, that kind of, that sense of scratch, I think, is kind of intimately related to that idea of zero. Maybe a good place to start with actual drawings is kind of the entry space to the show, which features five drawings. Maybe you could run us through those five and talk about how some of these ideas are present there. So when you kind of first enter the show, there's a very, very large James Lee Byers from 1959 an untitled drawing that's on view, which is just a very amazing graphic thing to kind of see when you're when you're entering. And of course, Byers was in Japan and that relationship between American artists and Japanese artists during this period is something that the exhibition thinks about. So a little later on, so you kind of get a, an introduction to that in a very kind of basic formal sense. There's this little kind of circle or dot at the bottom of the Byers, which I just 
I love is a kind of an emblem as you're entering a show about the idea of zero. And then you have two pairings when you when you enter the little foyer that leads you into the exhibition. On the right, there's a pairing of a little Louise Bourgeois drawing from 1950, which always reminds me of kind of a cell. It has this like mitochondrial feel or something very organic and a Willis de Castro gouache on graph paper from circa 58 that is very similar in terms of kind of the overall composition on the page somehow, and yet entirely antithetical in approach in that it's totally, you know, clean, hard geometry. And so I I was sort of introducing that pair as a little bit of a, a case study in the different formal approaches that you'll see throughout the show. And then you get this other pair, which in many ways is kind of at the heart of where the show wants to go, which is a Dubuffet, a little scratchy landscape drawing, an ink on paper from 1951, and Dick Higgins from his Graphis series, Graphis number 82 from 1960. And I was intrigued. I had read Dubuffet kind of use this, this great French word, graphisme which of course doesn't sound so great in English as graphism, but describing his ink drawings from this period. And of course, when I thought about the Higgins graphist series, I was, you know, just intrigued by the, the shared root there. Right. And, and what does it mean to be graphic in this period? What is graphism? And these two drawings, while, you know, from very different artists working in two different places at kind of opposite ends of the year span that this exhibition looks at, there's something similar in the in the kind of energy and line work of these two drawings. And so I set it out as a little bit of a provocation to say, how might we look at some of these artists within this period who we might not normally think of together, who may not have even known each other, but who might be exploring something similar? You referenced the size of the buyers. It's roughly six feet tall and three feet wide. Everything else you just mentioned is about the size of a piece of paper an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. So the buyers is booming. So we just talked about a couple of continents right there. How and why is this zero idea we're discussing happening to happen across multiple continents at once and across, to put it bluntly, artists whose nations were recently at war with each other? Yeah, I mean, they were recently at war with each other and then they were all kind of in the same, well, not all in the same position by far, but all in the position of having endured a cataclysmic upheaval in different ways. And so I think, you know, it, it was a world war and, and the impulse to start again or the need to start again is common, right? I mean, not unlike our worldwide cataclysm now, but yeah, I think different, you know, obviously the situations are unique to the particular places. You know, we have two drawings by the Nigerian artist Uche Okeke in the show and, you know, Nigerian independence comes in 1960. So that's a particular circumstance for the degree zero moment of that country. But, but I think overall it having been a world war and different countries all reacting to it in their own particular ways still share a kind of universal sense of, of starting again. One of the things that interested me about going through the checklist of the show is how present that idea is in the American artists. Obviously, America had an enormously different experience of the war than Japan or South Asia or Europe. And yet some of the mark making that we see in, say, Japanese artists and in Jackson Pollock and David Smith is really similar. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's not by coincidence. I think, you know, as I mentioned with like the, some of the pairings in the show are a little bit, you know, meant as a provocation curatorially, but others are, are pretty, are historically based. And so we see artists looking at other artists from other countries and feeding off of them. You know, three artists in the show David Smith, Mark Toby, and Norman Lewis, for example, are all showing at the Marion Willard Gallery in New York during this period. And the Marion Willard Gallery is also showing Japanese screens at the same time and, you know, gives David Smith a book of Japanese calligraphy. And Franz Klein was known to be corresponding with Japanese calligraphers during this period and his work being featured in their journals, um, despite his sort of need to repudiate that influence ostensibly because of his sort of macho, virile, American 
ism, right? And and so there are really connections where we know that artists are looking at each other. The pieces of actual Japanese calligraphy in the exhibition were shown at MoMA in 1954. So you have to imagine that artists are coming to see them. You have to imagine that Jackson Pollock, you know that Jackson Pollock is writing to other friends and artists about Henri Matisse, who's showing his fluid ink drawings at his son's gallery in New York at the same time that Pollock is experimenting with his fluid ink drawings. So I think, you know, a lot of these connections are are very real. And you have the, the Harold Rosenberg phrase, action painting manifesting itself in a totally different context in the work of an artist like Saburo Murakami, who is starting from zero with an act of, I don't know, force isn't the right word, but of I don't know. He's throwing a he's throwing a ball against a piece of paper, and boom, there you go. Yeah, I love the title. I mean, totally. Never, never a more explicit <laughs> title for a work, right? Work painted by throwing a ball. It is so Murakami. You mentioned Japanese calligraphy as being important, and I think it's really important across the show, maybe to artists on on three continents. Is it mostly coming to the attention of American artists anyway through that MoMA presentation in, I think it was 1954? Or are there other ways and reasons that Japanese practice, present and historical, is coming forward at this time? I think there are definitely other ways and reasons. I think the MoMA show is more like a symptom as much as a cause, right? You know, as I said, Klein is is actively corresponding with a lot of these artists, this Bokubai group who have this journal, The, the Beauty of Ink, and Pierre Alachinsky, um, part of the Kohlberg group, goes to Japan in 1956 and makes this film called Calligraphy Japonaise. So, you know, I think that these these exchanges are very much happening on a person to person, artist to artist level. And I think that it's something really purposeful actually in the work of the Japanese calligraphers of this time. What I learned in some of the research for this show is that in this moment in post-war Japan, traditional calligraphy is being rethought a bit and being pushed in an avant-garde way itself and being kind of, removed from the insistence on legibility. And I think that that distance from legibility is very much, from what I understand, on purpose to engage a more international audience who might not be able to read the work. And so they can certainly see it, uh, even if they can't read it. One of the really interesting things we see come into your degree zero idea is an embrace of chance by artists. Chance by the late 40s or early 50s is not a new thing in art. Dadaists had been doing it for several decades. But it sure both looks and feels different here, and not just in the Saburo Murakami work I mentioned a moment ago. Could you give us a couple examples of how artists are are using chance here and how they're remaking it in the context of the degree zero idea? You can't talk about chance without talking about Cunningham and Cage and I include a scores by both of them in the third of the three sort of galleries um, in the show. And you see Cage's musical composition in Cunningham's movement choreography for a dance literally called Sweet by Chance in the show. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was propose also how in this moment drawing one of the functions or purposes of drawing, right, was very much a score. The same with Dick Higgins who I mentioned in the, the kind of entry to the exhibition, but he appears again and is making kind of these scores that will be performed according to the performer, whatever member of the Fluxus movement that might have been at the time, you know, will will take a chance turn depending on how that performer decides to to engage it. There's a score in that same case in the third gallery where the Cunningham and Cage appear by the composer Toshi Ichiyanagi, and what I love about this score vis-a-vis the idea of, of degree zero is that if you look closely at the image, there are these little, literally zeros that appear within this web of line and they're cues to the performer of the score that when you hit one of those zeros, it's literally a cue to start again. And so I think it's it's almost like a perfect metaphor for the idea of the show that when you hit zero, you kind of have to, to restart. That work has one of the great titles ever. So what is it? <laughs> the Ichiyanagi, Music for Electric Metronome. 
you know, the other thing that, that, that strikes me about what, what you just said is that if we think of chance as entering 20th century art through Dada, you know, Dada is itself significantly, but not entirely, of course, an anti-war movement. Indeed, the first anti-war movement to happen during war in Western history. So we see artists using chance as a way to intellectually and pictorially start from scratch after after a war, which is something that really interested me about the checklist for this show. We've both used the word scratch, I think, about 20 times. And I think as people walk through this, this show, they'll under, under understand why. But there's also a lot of work here that might be vaguely described as hard edge or hard edge-ish. Not just the buyers we talked about earlier, but Byron Stout, or in a different way, Eduardo Ramirez, Villa Mazar. How do those kind of hard edge-ish, ish-ish works fit your idea? Yeah, it was it was important to me in building the checklist from the show, which I should say, you know, with our incredible holdings of drawings from this period, I could have done three times over. You know, I could have included any number of other things by the same artists, by different artists. I had to do a lot of difficult editing. But it was important to me all along that the show not subscribe to a single look. Certainly that that graphism idea is like at the heart of it from Dubuffet to Twombly at the end. But but I wanted to kind of show a range of vocabularies that artists were using at this time. And there is this kind of referred to as the cold abstraction that went up against the hot abstraction at the time. And, and in particular, there's a group of works by a range of artists from different nationalities and different generations, especially in Paris at the moment. So you have younger American artists like Ellsworth Kelly, of course, Latin American artists. You mentioned the Colombian artists, Villa Mazar, but the Brazilians, Hercules Barsotti and Willis de Castro, all coming to Paris and, you know, studying at the Atelier d'Art Abstrait with older statesmen like Auguste Urbain, you know, I don't remember, remember the last time an Urbain was on view at moments, just a little drawing. But to me, it's an important kind of establishment of, of the previous generation in proposing what he called a plastic alphabet and really seeing how these artists are all converging on a particular place in time and soaking in the previous generation's experiments with abstraction, even as they're changing it you know, whether it's in Brazilian neo-concrete art or, or Ellsworth Kelly's very particular mode. So this is a drawing show. There's a lot of restrained color, a lot of black and white, a lot of gray. But there are a couple of works here, particularly a Beaufort Delaney from 1955 that's a pastel on paper, and a Sonia Sekula from 1956 that's watercolor and ink on paper that are kind of impossible to miss as as being loudly colorful things. Did you have a particular reason or concept behind getting these slightly different works into the show? I think I feel sort of the same way I felt about, uh, I expressed feeling about the, you know, the scratching versus the clean or the hot abstraction versus the cold. I think if you hang things that are all black and white, they're going to look stunning together. But artists were making things in color too. And of course, the two works that you mentioned are, are absolutely stunning as well. And two of my favorites in the show, actually both recent acquisitions also, I should mention. And it's interesting, like they, they hang on the same wall and they have a really similar palette, strangely, totally accidentally, of course, they're different scales and different mediums. The Delaney is like really, it's hard to see even in an image, but the pastel in that work is so layered and kind of meaty and thick and visceral and like corporeal. It just has such like tooth. Whereas the, the Sony Secula is, is this intimate, beautiful jewel of a thing that kind of reminds me of stained glass in the way that the watercolor glows as if it's like lit from within. But yeah, I think in expressing the kind of range of practices at this moment, I wasn't trying to kind of tidy it up by eliminating a swath of things for some kind of aesthetic result. But I think despite them being in color and a lot of the works in the show 
otherwise being in black and white, I think there are such similar approaches to the medium and to line in the works as there are in others. The the Sonia is nearby, for example, like a Saul Steinberg, and it, it's not far from a, a Carl Henning Peterson Cobra drawing that's like a fantastical Nordic ship that's kind of made with the same tight coils of ink line that you see in the secula. So even though they're in color, they have a kind of approach that relates to other drawings in the show. Yeah, the Delaney really reminds me how much he leaned on his 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 garden in the suburbs of Paris. It's really Monet. And at the same time, what I love is in, in the upper right corner of this drawing, which you know, in many ways like signals this this shift when he goes from New York to Paris and this shift like in order to embrace abstraction, you get this remnant in the upper right corner with these this green circle and blue circle and red circle of the the street lights of the traffic lights that are in his Washington Square pictures from New York. So you have this this nice little reminder of his figurative mode. Love it. Samantha Friedman, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.